Lord, thanks for the privilege of coming together as a group of guys to study your word. And Father, may the uh, truths of Daniel 5 be something that informs the way we uh, make daily decisions in life. Father, may we be men who are not feasting uh, while Persians are at our gate. But may we be rightly related to your sovereignty in a way that informs the daily decisions of our lives. And may we honor what you honor. So thanks for this time, Father, and thanks for each of these guys who have uh, made it a priority to be here to be a part of studying your word. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, guys, I'm going to just dive right in. You know, like last week, hey, remember how Nebuchadnezzar actually is continuing to have an impact on... Um, Things today, we saw how you know he shows up in Veggie Tales and he's in the movie Matrix. Well, the same thing is true of Belshazzar down through the ages, and even the feast of Belshazzar. And so, on this next slide, I want to throw up here: um, this feast has been memorialized in a great painting by Rembrandt. It hangs in the National Gallery in London. And, uh, you know, it gives you a picture. Picture's worth a thousand words. So it gives you a picture of what, you know, perhaps the uh, banquet scene was like. I don't know if that's uh, the way the Babylonians dressed or not. But um, you can see that uh, uh, according to rabbinic tradition, one of the reasons that the message was hard to read was that it was written in columns instead of uh, in a line. And uh, that's the way Rembrandt actually painted it. And so, um, interestingly enough, the Feast of Belshazzar also figures in uh, on one of our American uh, presidential campaigns. Anybody know that? Remember the great campaign of 1884? It was a little while ago, okay? but is actually one of the dirtiest campaigns in American political history. Uh, And so let me tell you the story of that campaign, because the Feast of Belshazzar marks a turning point in that campaign. That uh, election pitted Grover Cleveland, the Democrat. Uh, He was a guy that uh, went from, in uh, an incredible span of four years, he went from being mayor of Buffalo, New York, to being governor of New York, to being president of the United States, four years. Okay, you know, some might say that uh, our current president didn't have a lot of experience before he uh, came into office. Well, you know, think about a guy that goes from being mayor of a town to president of the United States in less than four years. That's pretty amazing. He's a guy that was known for personal integrity, and uh, this was a campaign that was really all about personal integrity. Um, the Republican was a guy named James Blaine, and he was a guy that had all the experience in the world. He'd actually been Speaker of the House of Representatives, he'd been Secretary of State, and he'd been a U.S. Senator from Maine. But he had, he was dogged by issues of personal integrity, uh, and had been accused of selling his influence. You know, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And, um, Cleveland was uh, sailing along and looking like uh, he was going to be the guy. And until July, uh, before the election in November, um, his hometown newspaper in Buffalo uh, revealed that he had fathered a child out of wedlock. Okay, I'm not making this up. 
uh, he um, it became known that he had actually uh, uh, fathered a child, and the campaign decided that the best way to deal with this was to tell the truth, uh, in a manner of speaking. And uh, does this sound um, surprisingly modern? Uh, they admitted that Cleveland had formed an illicit connection with the mother and that a child had been born and had been given the Cleveland surname. And uh, they also noted that there was no proof that Cleveland was the father and that he was merely doing his duty by assuming responsibility and finding a home for the child. Sounds pretty modern, doesn't it? Um, And so, you know, you would think that with that... Revelation coming out pretty late in the campaign, July, elections in November, that, hey, things are cinched for the Republican. But not so fast. Um, James Blaine was a guy that had his own personal issues. And uh, um, you'll see that uh, although the Republicans were using a campaign slogan that really became one of the more famous ones in modern uh, uh, American political history, Ma Ma, uh, where's my Paul, was the uh, slogan that the Republicans used against Cleveland. Um, and you'll see the Democrats' answer to that at the end of the story. Uh, but so Blaine is sailing along, and he hits a couple of speed bumps the week before the election. And let's move to the next slide. And here's one of them. He has a dinner in New York City the last week of the campaign with a bunch of the New York City, uh, uh, his wealthy patrons and political supporters. It included guys like uh, uh, John Jacob Astor and Cornelius Vanderbilt, uh, Robert Barron, Jay Gould, and so on the, um, Joseph Pulitzer uh, had a newspaper, he of, uh, uh, after whom the Pulitzer Prize is named. Um, his newspaper ran this editorial cartoon on the front page of the paper all the way across the paper. And it's entitled, The Royal Feast of Belshazzar Blaine and the Money Kings. And this cartoon is credited with uh, carrying the day in New York. Uh, Cleveland actually won New York, his, his own state, by only 1,100 votes. And this, cam- this cartoon coming out right at the end is credited with changing the uh, tenor of the race. You know, the Democrats distributed thousands of this, uh, copies of this cartoon all over the state. And... Uh, um, Cleveland went on to uh, uh, win by one of the closest margins in American uh, electoral history. And the Democrats had the final word on the slogan, Ma, Ma, where's my Paul? And they answered it with, gone to the White House, ha, ha, ha. And so, you know, the Feast of Belshazzar, um, this says a couple of things. One, it says a lot about the biblical literacy of uh, the United States in the 1880s. They got it. I'm not so sure that today we'd get uh, a reference to the Feast of Belshazzar. You guys would, but I'm not so sure the rest of the country would. But at the same time, it also says to us, hey, let's stop and ask ourselves a question of who are the Persians at my gate? And am I feasting right now, just sailing along, living life, 
while there are actually Persians that are standing there at my gate waiting to attack? And I think that's a great question for us. Um, you know, should any of this be a surprise to Babylon? Well, if they'd been reading uh, the uh, book of Isaiah as we are on the journey, it absolutely would not have been. You'll see in the next slide of Isaiah 47, uh, verses 11 and 10, I'm sorry, 10 and 11 I have up here. Um, you felt secure in your wickedness and said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil will come upon you which you will not know how to charm away. And disaster will fall on you for which you cannot atone. And destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. And the whole chapter of Isaiah 47 is about the destruction of Babylon. And so this wasn't any surprise to someone like uh, uh, Daniel. Perhaps uh, Isaiah had written about 150 years before this actually happened. And so uh, we see that the Word of God has accurately forecasted the fall of Babylon. So let's take a look at uh, an outline for the chapter. Verses 1 through 4, we have the feast. Thousand Persian noble, or I'm sorry, thousand Babylonian nobles. Um, it's a drunken revelry. Uh, then verses 5 through 9, we have something amazing happen. Um, they see a hand and some fingers actually writing on the wall. And uh, it, it writes something that no one is able, none of the Chaldean wise men or astrologers or whatnot are able to interpret in uh, verses 5 through 9. And then in verses 10 through 23, you see a couple of forgotten lessons, one of which the queen, who's likely the queen mother, um, says, hey, there is a guy who can um, interpret this for you. And she reminds uh, uh, Belshazzar, who's likely her son, about Daniel. And then Daniel reminds Belshazzar of the lesson that he knew, but had obviously forgotten, of what had happened with Nebuchadnezzar. And then finally, we have the final word as we interpret, as Daniel interprets the vision, and uh, uh, we see the fall of Babylon in verses 24 through 30. So let's jump into the uh, middle of this. And I want to uh, talk about four issues uh, in the chapter. And the first is the context. You know, from the chart that Blake passed out uh, in the second week, this chapter is really out of chronological context for the entire book. Okay? Remember, the book's divided into six hero stories up front, followed by um, four visions that uh, Daniel has. Okay? And so this is in chronological order within those hero stories, but it's not in chronological order for the entire book. Because if you look at verses, uh, uh, verse 1 of chapters 7 and 8, you'll see that uh, uh, references made to uh, chapter 7 occurring in the first year of Belshazzar's reign, and chapter 8 occurring in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. And so here we are in chapter 5, it actually occurs in the last year of Belshazzar's reign, on the last day of Belshazzar's reign. Okay, so um, don't be confused by that. Um, obviously, I think that there are a couple of reasons why um, 
Daniel wrote it this way. Let's talk about that. You know, the placement next to chapter 4 ensures that uh, the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar is just fresh uh, on our minds, and it really emphasizes the sovereignty of God in the affairs of men. You know, this was the lesson of uh, uh, chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way, and it's also the lesson of chapter 5 that Belshazzar has forgotten. And Daniel wants to make sure by putting it next to chapter 4 that we as the readers, we don't forget this lesson. And we understand that the Most High is sovereign and that He rules over the affairs of man and that He sets over those affairs whom He will. Let's take a look at the players in this little drama besides Daniel. Okay, so, you know, Belshazzar, we know, uh, he is likely either a son or more likely a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the word for, uh, the Aramaic word for father can either mean father or grandfather. And scholars think that Belshazzar likely reigned as either a, uh, likely as a co-regent with uh, his father Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, who actually served as king from 556 B.C. to 539 B.C. And um, scholars think that Nebuchadnezzar was actually out fighting the uh, Persians and had been defeated and that the Persians had then um, gone and surrounded the city of Babylon. And that's the way the, the stage is set for Daniel 5, that this feast is going on while the city of Babylon is surrounded uh, by a horde of Persians. Okay, and as I said earlier, the queen in verse 10 is likely not uh, Belshazzar's wife, but is likely the queen mother, someone who was either the uh, uh, daughter uh, or granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, possibly, and uh, someone who was likely uh, married to Nabonidus and was the uh, mother of Belshazzar. Okay? And, you know, if you look at uh, her message to Belshazzar, one, she comes into the presence of the king without being summoned. And so that obviously indicates that she had some sort of special status. At the same time, um, the message that she gives to him uh, is very much a motherly sort of message. If you read through it carefully, you'll say, hmm, this sounds like a mom talking to her son saying, hey, boy, you can do this, okay? Let's sit down and think about this. All right, so that's the the, uh, players in this little drama. We know from historical records that it occurred on uh, October 12th, uh, 539 B.C., uh, dated from uh, contemporary uh, Babylonian and Persian records. We know uh, with some certainty that date. And the the next issue is the uh, blasphemy and idolatry that went on that night. And you know... Having a drunken feast in the face of invasion, invading Persian hordes is tough enough. But at the same time, Belshazzar compounds it by uh, saying, Hey, we'll send to the temple uh, or to the storage place or the treasury, wherever they kept these uh, items that they had taken from conquered peoples, and we'll get the sacred uh, gold and silver vessels that have come from the temple, and we'll use those for our feast. That was a really bad idea. In the uh, pantheon of bad ideas, that may have been the worst. 
And so he does that, and then he uses the vessels to drink from. And the uh, uh, picture of the Rembrandt painting is a great uh, uh, illustration of, uh, you know, they, uh, the king uh, is actually shown knocking over one of the uh, vessels as he rears back from seeing the handwriting. And, you know, guys, God is a God of grace warnings, but there comes a time when he's had enough. And so, you know... We live our lives in such a way that um, uh, we need grace warnings. I need grace warnings in my life. And if I'm not willing to heed those warnings, then, you know, shame on me. And finally, the uh, uh, sovereignty of God has had enough. He compounds it by uh, not just using those uh, uh, gold and silver vessels from uh, captured from the temple in Jerusalem. But then, at the same time, he pays homage to the, uh, as it says, the gods of gold and silver and wood and iron and uh, stone. And so he, he profanes the name of God by worshiping, using these vessels in connection with worship of other gods. And you know, that's something that throughout history, God has said that should not be. So let's take a look at the message. Okay, one of the things we see in chapter 5 is that the issues and lessons that we talked about last week in Daniel 4 are just as relevant for Daniel 5. You know, we see someone who has to deliver bad news to one in authority. We see the opportunity to heed a grace warning, and uh, that opportunity is lost. And then we finally see the... uh, uh, opportunity that uh, someone has to deal with God's sovereignty. And, uh, you know, guys, that is the question for us today. Are we going to live in accordance with God's sovereignty, or are we going to ignore it? Well, the message itself, uh, scholars think, refers to either uh, units of weight or perhaps even uh, uh, money. Okay? And uh, uh, Daniel's uh, explanation is pretty simple and straightforward. He says, your days are numbered, you have been weighed and found wanting. And then he uses what may well be a a double meaning. Uh, The word can either mean uh, divided or it can mean Persians. And it... Either way it goes, it's bad news for Belshazzar. Either his kingdom's going to be divided, or the Persians are going to take it over. And we know that's exactly what happened that night. And what the Persians did was, you know, the impregnability of the city of Babylon was something that uh, uh, Belshazzar was counting on. Um, the walls around it were so wide and so thick that you could literally drive four chariots abreast on the walls around the city. And so he had put his confidence in the impregnability of the city where he lived. And what the Persians did was they diverted the flow of the Euphrates River. And when the river went down, then they were able to come under the gates across the river and get into the city. And that was it for uh, Belshazzar. He died that night. So let's ask ourselves four questions. Why worry about the blank when I have security and plenty to eat? While I'm in the midst of a feast, while I'm uh, hanging out with my buddies, life is good. 
Okay? I got a job. I'm married. You know, why should I worry about the Persians at my gate? Well, God tells us by passages like this that those things can change in an instant. And so, am I going to live in accordance with the sovereignty of God? Or am I going to ignore it? So, what is it in my life? And these last three questions that go from uh, preaching to meddling. What do I honor that dishonors the King of Heaven? How am I lifting myself up instead of humbling my heart before the King of Heaven? And finally... Am I living like God is sovereign? Or am I living like Crotty is sovereign? Well, I've got to tell you guys, way too often, it's the latter. And if you're anything like me, the uh, opportunity to do it Bob's way is always compelling. But it's usually never the right way. So our task as men who want to be rightly aligned with the sovereignty of God is to line up our daily decisions. Someone asked the other day, said, well, how did Daniel do this? How, how was he able to do this for so long? People think that uh, he was probably in his 80s at this point in time. And you see, as he's brought into the king, he doesn't have the same flowery sort of address that he gave to Nebuchadnezzar. He um, says, hey... You know, your medals and your uh, robes and whatnot, I don't need them. Here's what it means. And he uh, deals with the king directly. And he is old enough to say, uh, let's cut the BS. Here's what it means. Okay? And so how was Daniel found faithful over all these years? Well, guys, I think it's in the little things. That he was found faithful in the little decisions of daily life. That he was found faithful to know his scriptures. He was found faithful to be in prayer. He was found faithful to be in community. You remember the guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Those guys were guys that he lived in community with. And that's how Daniel was found faithful. And I love how the chapter ends in the um, verse 29. This is Belshazzar's final command. You know, man may have the first word, but God has the final word. And so he gives orders and he, they put uh, these honors on Daniel and uh, issue a proclamation that he's now the third ruler in the kingdom. And, you know, it just really didn't matter to Daniel because that was the uh, uh, final command that Belshazzar issued. Uh, and we see that the final word actually belongs to God. And so let me close by just throwing out a couple of questions. So are you a Daniel being honored for your faithfulness to the sovereignty of God? Are you going to be faithful in the little things? Are you going to be faithful in the things that prepare you for the big decisions of life? Or are you and I going to be a Belshazzar? who are feasting away while our days are numbered. You know, our days are numbered. You know, we only have so long to live. And what we do in living that life, those days that we've been given uh, for Christ, is what's going to matter. I love, uh, I'll close with this, staff prayer the other day, we're sitting there, and Jim Wimberly ripped off a, a great line. He said, you know, memorizing Scripture is luggage you can take to heaven. 
I mean, how true is that? The things that we have done in this life for Christ are the things that are preparing us for eternity that we can take into eternity. So are you going to be a Daniel who has been faithful in the little things and rewarded for being faithful? Or are you going to be a Belshazzar who is feasting away while your days are numbered? Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, thanks for uh, this message. Our heart, Father, is to be rightly related to your sovereignty. That we humble our hearts before you, that we honor in our lives uh, the things that you honor. And so, Father, help us to live in a way that shows that you are sovereign, in a way that transforms our very lives and causes others around us to say, what's different about this guy? Thanks for these guys, Father, and may this be a day in which we uh, are found faithful. In Christ's name, amen.